Welcome in. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining me once again. Frank Leahy, my favorite Notre Dame coach of all time, was obsessed with football perfection. It consumed him. It meant everything to him, so much so that it made him physically ill when perfection wasn't achieved. Perfection was always Frank's expectation. In that regard, I have no doubt that Mr. Leahy couldn't be prouder of the 2020 Notre Dame squad. 24 straight home wins, perfect 10-0 record. Ian Book becomes the winningest Notre Dame quarterback of all time. We have a chance to win a conference, as weird as that sounds, and also enter the playoff. Things are good. I panicked multiple times this year early in games when they started Rocky, but the team never did. They navigated virus uncertainty, political turmoil, changes in routine, restricted social life, all of it. This team has sacrificed a lot and went undefeated. They've won 10 or more games in all of the past four years. Extra credit in order for the seniors for having the mentality it took to accomplish this. And I want to thank them for raising the bar for the program moving forward, no matter what happens the rest of the way. Now our sights are set on next level goals. Let's talk about this game, wrap it up. Then let's talk about the ACC title game. Let's talk about the playoff picture, what that looks like. We got a lot to cover. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Let's go. We talk about respect. We're talking about respect around the country. One thing that we want more than anything else, and that's respect. Welcome to the Always Irish Show. A whole lot of Notre Dame football and a little bit of everything else. And now your host, you know him as the football Floyd that's often annoyed, here's Johnny. That's right. Welcome in. Welcome back to an undefeated edition of the Always Irish Show. Thank you for joining me. I do appreciate it. This is where it gets exciting because from here on out, we got big time situations to talk about with big time implications. So these next, really the next month should be exciting. So stay tuned, okay? As always, YouTube, subscribe, type in Always Irish. You'll find me Hit the subscribe button. I do appreciate it. Um, If you like the video, give it a thumbs up. All that stuff helps people find the show. So I do appreciate it. Twitter at JKZND4 or just type Always Irish in the search bar. Email alwaysirishnd at gmail.com. I did get back to some more people last week. Keep the interaction coming. Uh, Merchandise link is in the description below. Click on that if you desire. Uh, audio only. You could get me anywhere. Like, subscribe, share, review, comment, write mean things. I don't care what you do. I just like the interaction, okay? So let's get into this a little bit. Where to start? In regards to the Syracuse game, in the moment, especially early on, I was frustrated, okay? I It was sloppy, 
it was sloppy. So early on in this game, I was frustrated. It's a one-win team with nothing to play for but to ruin your season. We're so, so apart in terms of the worlds we live in in college football, of where their program's at right now versus where ours is, all that kind of stuff. So early on, I was frustrated. But in retrospect, after we won and took care of business and things calmed down, when you think about it, was this little bit of a struggle that big of a surprise? Maybe. But you got to understand, this was their Super Bowl. While we're looking at the playoff winning a championship and, and halfway getting ready for the next Clemson game, during preparation for Syracuse. So it's just hard because I, I, I don't want to see us play rough early. But ultimately, I think I understand why this happened. It's human nature. I kind of get it. I actually kind of get it. Now, in the moment, yeah, whenever we start out bad and sloppy, I'm going to be on Twitter losing my mind. That's what I do. I react in the moment, okay? So, but when you think about it, to some extent, I get this. Just the mental place both these programs are in and all the players and whatnot, I kind of just understand why this was what it was. Look at the buzz, you guys. There was almost no buzz leading up to this from anybody, the only buzz is if you've been watching Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Buzz, your girlfriend, woof. Like, it just, you could just feel it. There just wasn't much there because it's one win Syracuse, last game of the year, no fans there. We already locked up what we need to lock up, so I get it. It was just a sloppy game for the most part. Just weird stuff happened that quite frankly, I almost just want to put in the rear view mirror and just move on and just chalk it up to the dichotomy of where these programs were at. Our mind was already on Clemson getting ready for that during this week of practice leading up to Syracuse. It can't shock me that Syracuse came out to burn everything down because they have one win. What do they have to lose and just went for it. So I credit them for doing that. I credit the way Syracuse was flying around. And early on, they were charging downhill at the ball, stopping the run, doing all that kind of stuff. So I I respect that. But I'm just not going to dissect this game down to the nut and bolt of every piece of it. It was what it was. We got the win, and you keep it moving to your bigger picture goals. The The only thing you couldn't happen is just find a way to lose that game, okay? So, but just, it was just kind of sloppy. It's just, it, it just, it's just sloppy. I, I don't know what else to say. I, 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 bad tackling early, drop passes early, missed tackles early, missed blocks early. Just, we just haven't played this clean and tight since Clemson. So if you were going to do it, I'm glad it was that game where we actually played tight and crisp, but we just haven't seen it since then. Um, But just weird stuff. Two times we had sequences where 
They turn it over, we turn it over. We turn it over, they turn it over. Just that's not Notre Dame football 2020. It's just not. It's just not. The, those turnovers, just Ian Book, I went on this thing last week knocking on wood, saying how many passes he's thrown with no interceptions. I was literally saying, knock on wood, hope I don't jinx him, and then right when I say it, he throws an interception. So it was just not the cleanest, not the tightest, not the crispest. And if this was game one, game two, game three, game four, I would be looking at this differently. But the situation changes my perspective on it. Right? Like like our situation was one where you don't worry about style points. You don't worry about nothing. You just had to win this game. And if a part of the reason we didn't start off great is because we were prepping for Clemson, I'm all for it. That's the sign of a top-tier program when you can simultaneously, I've talked about this before, when you could simultaneously prep for the game you have this week and also be prepping for something bigger down the road and be able to to compartmentalize those two different things and what you got to do to get through this week, but also looking at the bigger picture, bigger fish to fry down the road. I understand that. So it is what it is. A lot of this stuff, I'm just going to kind of wipe the slate clean and get ready for Clemson. Um, I just think this team's deserved it and and where we're at in the season, they did what they had to do. Ultimately, you guys, it looked rough in and and the final score, it it didn't even look rough. Like if you didn't watch the game and you just looked at the final score, you're saying, Oh, Notre Dame won pretty easily. John must have been relaxed for that one. Psych. No, false. I was not relaxed, but ultimately it wasn't close. Did what you had to do, started your prep for Clemson. I can live with it. Now, here's a mini rant, though, that I have. Here's the thing, you guys. I got people hot-taking, exposing me on Twitter now because I tweet angrily when bad stuff happens early and we come out doing dumb stuff against a one-win team. Yes, I'm going to live-tweet that I hate that. And that it's driving me crazy. And knowing we're so much better than them, why are we doing this? So, to after the game, and we win by a lot, to start quote-tweeting me, oh, bet you look like a dummy now because you were all upset in the first quarter and look how much we won. You don't know anything about football. I get a bunch of those tweets after every game we win where it starts out rocky and I'm freaking out and mad about it, okay? That's what Twitter is. Twitter is the whole point of Twitter is to express how you're feeling at that time, at that time, at that time when we're losing to one win Syracuse. Sorry, I'm not going to tweet that it's all okay. I'm just not. So yes, it ended up okay, but it's not really exposing a hot, cold take when at that time we were doing dumb things and playing crappy and I was mad about it. Just because we won it later, that doesn't mean that what I was feeling at that time was invalid. Three hours earlier, it was what was going on. So I just, I really don't get that. Um, Because 
The whole point of Twitter is to tweet what you're thinking and feeling right now. Over the course of a four-hour game, the tenor changes as things happen. That's a part of the fun, is riding those ups and downs. I make no bones about this. I'm a rather emotional Notre Dame fan. So whatever it is, I'm going to make a big deal of it, good, bad, or indifferent. That's just my personality. That's how I operate, okay? I am not going to be in a position where I'm frustrated with how we're playing and it's sloppy football, and I'm going to say to myself, well, but I'm not going to tweet that because in four hours we'll probably win. No! I'm going to tweet what's going on now and adjust my tweets as the game progresses and I have more updated information. So if you think you're nailing me on a cold take because I didn't like us being down to Syracuse, whatever, like go for it. But that's the whole point of Twitter. So maybe you don't understand the medium, but if you're a mature enough Notre Dame fan to be on Twitter in our big Notre Dame circle of Twitter, and we're playing bad, and you're thinking, well, I'm not going to tweet about that, and I'm just going to wait four hours. What the hell fun is that? Get it out. That's what I do. I get it all out. So if that makes me a cold take artist, go for it. It's not like we were losing to Syracuse early, and I said, the whole season's ruined. Shut the program down. We're not Michigan. So anyways, that's a little mini rant on the cold takes. At the time, what I said applied perfectly. Four hours later, I have new information. Anyways, moving forward, shall we? Let's, let's wrap that discussion up. Here's something I wanted to get into. And I was thinking about this over the weekend. I wanted to analyze... Now that we are done with this ACC joining officially for one year uh, regular season, I was asking myself what I think and feel about it overall. It's the first time I've ever got to experience it, all of us, right? Here's where I think I fall big picture on this full-time ACC experiment. What I like most about it is... And I talk about this all, I've talked about this for years and years and years when us joining a conference full-time was unimaginable. Pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, I talked about this all the time. What I like most about being in the ACC is the cushion it provides. Meaning, Notre Dame was never in a situation where if they lose one game, they're probably out of playoff contention. Most years with our independent schedule, That's the case. You lose one, and it's usually your biggest one. It's hard for Notre Dame to make a playoff in most years with that loss. Being in a conference provides flexibility we never had before. And we're still in that position where we could lose the next game and still make the playoff. That is not something Notre Dame's going to have most times in a non-pandemic, traditional, four-team playoff type year. So on the positive end, that's what I liked best about it is it gives you the flexibility to not feel like if you slip up once, all your goals are out the window. That's what I like. What do I not like about it 
It's just a way, way boring schedule. It's just a way boring schedule. You're playing in one area of the country only. You're playing a bunch of these teams that are just not good and don't excite you when you see them on the schedule. You don't have the hatred. You know, you didn't have Michigan on the schedule to hate. You didn't have USC on the schedule to hate. You didn't have Shaw's stupid smirk out there uh, in California at Stanford to beat. Okay, you didn't have your normal Navy thing. Like, so that's what I don't like about it. It's, it's, it's a little bit boring. Now, maybe if you're watching this and your team, if you're not a Notre Dame fan, but you're watching this and your team's always been in a Power 5 conference, maybe you can't relate to this because it's just your life and what you're used to with your team. But for me, it's just a little bit boring to only worry about one little geographical region when normally Notre Dame fans are sitting there analyzing the whole country, playing a team in New York, playing a team in Florida, going out west to play USC or Stanford. We were intermingling into all these other conferences, all these different geographical regions, different ways teams play football in different conferences. You lose all that when you're just worried about one geographical area. And it just, it was fine and a really, really strong plan B with the preference being independence when it's available to us. It was a really, really strong plan B. I'm appreciative of the ACC leadership that they wanted Notre Dame to do this. It is good for them overall, raises the entire profile of the league, all that. But it's just a little boring. It's just a little boring. So that's just how I feel. Um, Now, here's where I think all this comes together and comes to a head. And this is probably the overarching big point. I think in a couple years the playoff TV contract deals come off the books. I fully expect playoff expansion, probably not even to six, but to eight. So in this regard, Notre Dame, in my position, I might get everything I've asked for. The ability to go back to an independent nationwide schedule and the ability with the expanded playoff to be able to lose a game and not be out of the playoff as an independent almost every year. If it goes to eight teams, 11-1 Notre Dame should be in there almost every year. So that's what I think's coming, and that's a really strong position for Notre Dame to be in. I think that's the best outcome you could have, to be able to maintain your independent scheduling flexibility and have the benefit of it's not one loss and you're done. So that's where I think we're headed. So I think Notre Dame's going to end up getting everything I wanted, having the independent schedule and the ability to lose a game and not be out. So that's where I think we're headed three years, whatever it is, 2024, 25, I think. That deal ends. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's where I think this is heading, and I love that. That's the best case scenario from where I sit.
Okay. Couple other things too. I was thinking back about this. I was thinking about 2012's undefeated season. I was thinking about this season. And I'm not complaining. I'm just stating a fact. I just feel less connected to this team because I wasn't able to go to the games. Like 2012, I was at every home game and the Miami game at Soldier Field. So you build those memories. They're woven into the fabric of you thinking of going undefeated that year. Um, I'm picturing the fun I had at the Miami game, being able to buy beer the whole time and we blew them out. Easier drive for me to get there than to get to South Bend. That was fantastic. I'm thinking about me and my dad at the Michigan game where we beat them at home and they turned the ball over like five times. That was a great memory. I'm thinking about the Stanford goal line stand in the pouring, freezing rain. That was a hell of a memory. I'm thinking about all that stuff. The pit game and all the drama with that. I feel like I'm more connected to that because I was able to be there for all of it and feel that live energy. That just wasn't possible this year. And um, so it's just a different vibe because I wasn't able to be there. Um, so it it just is what it is. I mean, I know there's nothing anybody could do about it. I'm just telling you how I feel. And that's how I feel. On to... Um, Staying on the home game uh, train here, Mike Collins, the PA, longtime PA announcer, class act, just a Notre Dame guy, top to bottom, total class act. It was his last game announcing in Notre Dame. Um, the only, it sucked because he gave that very touching Godspeed speech at the end of the last game and like five people were there for it just because of the pandemic. So Mike Collins, class guy, hope you have a great retirement. Um, thank you for all you've done for Notre Dame, okay? So with all that stuff out of the way, let's uh, let's tidy up the Syracuse game. There's a few things we do need to go over, but I'm not going to dissect it the way I normally do. Okay, so offensively, Ian Book, 30 wins, winning as quarterback in Notre Dame. Here's the nice part about that. Yeah, that's cool. That's fantastic. He's won the most games as a Notre Dame quarterback. The best part about this discussion and this narrative is this journey's not over. This journey is not over. So it's not like the season's over. We win some, uh, the pitch a tent in your pants bowl, and then he's got the most wins ever. He's in a position where he could cement a way bigger legacy than just winning the most games as a Notre Dame quarterback. He's three wins away from a damn statue that I'm going to chisel myself if he pulls this off. So that's the most exciting part of Ian Book breaking that record. There's still a lot of meat left on the bone. He could... It's almost scary to think about what would happen to his profile being a Notre Dame quarterback if he's able to win three more games. So it's great to see what he's already done, but he could do a lot more. 
a lot more, and that excites me. So congratulations to him. Tough kid. He deserves the accolades he's getting. He's turned it on. He's playing great at the perfect time. So, uh, But that's the most important part of that legacy is what could still be added to it, okay? 24 of 37, 285 yards, three touchdowns passing, two running. He did have the one pick. His first pick in 266 attempts right after I mentioned it in last week's show saying, you know, by the way, Ian Book's gone this long without an interception. Knock on wood, ha, ha, ha. Then he throws one. Okay, so that's a good streak. It's sad that it ended. Maybe it's my fault that I brought it up. Okay, um, eight rushes, 53 yards, two touchdowns on the ground. So he's responsible for five touchdowns. That's what you want to see against a one-win team, isn't it? So... Uh, Ian Book continues his good play overall. Um, here's the biggest thing that I liked from Ian Book in this ball game. Um, the one thing is, I want to go back a little bit. The eight rushes for 53 yards, two touchdowns, all that. Here's the thing. Ian Book is turning into an expert at knowing exactly when to run and where to run. It's got to be so frustrating to defend this because he just figures out where to go and when to go. And that hasn't always been a strength of his. But lately, he's got a really mature pocket presence when he knows when to bail and when not to bail and where to bail if he needs to bail, how to up, get what you could get and avoid a hit. Um He's getting a better gauge on when he needs to bail but not cross the line of scrimmage yet. So bail out enough to where the defense doesn't know whether they need to suck up and play him running or to stay back in coverage. That's exactly where you want to put a defense, where they don't know which way to go. Okay, so his feel on those is getting to be really extremely impressive. Um... But here's what I liked overall. And maybe I've missed this before and it's been there. Maybe. I don't know. You guys tell me. But I felt like in this game, there were times where it felt like we should have been in control, winning by more, but we weren't. Things weren't running as efficiently and crisply on offense as we want. You got... The offensive line was all messed up for this game with injuries and outages and whatnot. I really felt like there was a couple points in this game where Ian Book just took it over and did it himself. And and I just, I felt, I don't know how to describe it, but I just felt like I could feel from Ian him being like, you know what, screw this. Somebody needs to make something happen. And he just did it on his own. So, you know, the one where um, nobody was open and he ran it up the middle and ended up taking it all the way to the end zone. That's a perfect example. Um, he he just kind of overtook it and just said, I'm just going to do this myself then. And the thing is, I don't feel like we've had that kind of quarterback play at Notre Dame for a really long time 
or had a guy capable of playing to the level where he could just take it over and go get it done. And I felt that from him early on in this game or midway through this game. And I just think it's great because we just don't always have that as Notre Dame fans. We are winning games because of the starting quarterback. That's a big, big deal and something we're not always used to. So I I love to see it, okay? Um, the other thing with Ian Book is some people think I'm overblowing this. But did you guys watch Clemson, Virginia Tech? And they say on the broadcast, well, we're going to do an interview with Ian Book coming up. So I'm thinking it's going to be during a timeout. It's going to be at halftime something. But no, they put Ian Book on half the TV screen during the, the, the Clemson-Virginia Tech game. So Clemson and Virginia Tech plays are literally going on. And half of the TV screen across the entire country is Ian Book talking about us, him, playing Clemson again. They're asking him stupid questions. Like, but I just thought it was the ultimate troll job that isn't an intentional troll job. You got, listen, sure enough, on Twitter, a lot of people weren't happy about that. What the hell, this... This isn't a Notre Dame press conference. Get this guy off the TV, all that. I love it. Like, I I knew right when that happened, oh, shit, people are going to be pissed off about this. So people were saying to me, though, John, how could that be so surprising to you? The TV network's trying to build up the playoff game and all or the ACC title game, and that's why they're doing it. I get all that, but I just... I do not personally remember in the middle of a game letting an interview take up half the screen by the opposing quarterback of a rival team that's playing in that game. I just don't remember seeing it set up that way before. Doing it at halftime is no big deal. They do that all the time. Doing it during the game and having our quarterback take up half the screen during a Clemson game, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Now, true, total transparency, I always shoot you guys straight. If I was a Clemson fan, you're damn sure that would have pissed me off. I would have been like, dude, this isn't Sports Center. This isn't a, a podcast or a Notre Dame show. Get this guy off my screen especially when the last time they saw him, he was frustrating the hell out of them and winning the game. So I loved it. I just thought it was kind of a ballsy move. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember that type of interview. Wall plays are going on, taking up half the screen. So I loved it as a low-key Notre Dame troll job that nobody could blame Notre Dame for. That's a network thing. And if they ask you to go on, you're going to go on. Why would you turn it down? So I thought that was hilarious because people were pissed off. And if I was a Clemson fan, true transparency, I wouldn't have liked it either. I would have said, get this guy 
off my screen and give me the full screen for my team. It's our game. So whatever. It didn't happen to us, so I'll roll with it. But I wouldn't have liked it if I was a Clemson fan. I'm going to be totally transparent about that. The run game. 40 for 283. Seven average. Three touchdowns. It just, it didn't feel that good. I didn't feel like the run game was creating the lanes we're used to earlier in the game. Um, You got to understand also, Tyree popping a 94-yarder certainly helps that overall average to make it look better. So, 283 for a seven average three touchdowns, you're not going to complain about. I just personally didn't feel that running the ball was coming as easily to us as it has in most games, even against Clemson. So that was frustrating. Listen, Syracuse was selling out to stop the run, running all downhill, bringing all kinds of guys. Our offensive line, we got three guys moving all over because of injuries or whatever else. So it is what it is. I mean, I didn't feel like it was great. Um, I think the offensive line definitely needs to get healthy. I felt like it was visible to me that they weren't creating as many running lanes. So it's good to have depth there, but those guys aren't what the first unit is for a reason. So I felt like it was obvious to me in running situations, we missed having um, at least four-fifths four of our lineup what it should be. Um, so the other thing is Kyron got to over a thousand yards first guy since Adams to do it. So credit to him. Um, it's just really nice to have two speed type backs that can always pop on any play. It doesn't matter what it is. They could hit one of them, find a crease and they're gone. So to not have one of them, but to have two of them is unbelievable. Kyron with the one move he did, it's just certain guys just have a feel of how to move when they're running the ball. It's like Gail Sayers or something where you just know how to move and flow and move your body. It's like it's like a football fan's ballet watching Kyron Williams run. Just the way, the feel, he, the natural feel he has of what he needs to do with his body and making it look so fluid and natural and instinctual and effortless, um, that's rare and it's, it's, it's exciting. And I expect to see more of that feel from Tyree moving forward. But for now, it's more of if he has a crease, see you later. So that's exciting as hell to see uh, on the offense. And those are guys we're going to have around for more years. That's the other thing. It's not like these guys are doing all this and then they're gone after this year. They're younger guys that still can get better and develop even further, which is fantastic moving forward. Okay. Um, here's the other reason that's important to me is you're going to lose a lot of this cohesion on the offensive line to the NFL. So you're going to have a less experienced offensive line next year 
that's where you're hoping those guys' skill level of not needing that big of a crease to pop something big will come into play. So that's that's a good development. Those guys are balling out. You love to see it, okay? Talking about the receivers, McKinley. Now, there were some drops early I didn't understand it in like, but overall, McKinley, seven for one third, uh, seven for one eleven, three touchdowns. He came into this game with none and left with three. So fantastic for him. And McKinley slowly turned into a go-to big-bodied target type receiver, and that's just good to see. Um, and good for him. He stuck it out. And it's been tough. Um, He hasn't always gotten the most snaps. And so I'm just happy for McKinley that he stuck it out. And now he's balling out. He's a main target and he's performing well. So that's great to see. Um, Benny Sko, four for 71. And uh, Michael Myers, a.k.a. Mayer, five for 36. Listen, and I mean this genuinely. There is no amount of passes you could throw to Mayer to where I'd say it's too many. They're just, it's just not, it's not possible. You could throw him the ball 15 times and I'd say give it to him 16 times. Just keep giving him the ball. I love those little drag routes, shallow drag crossers, you know, seven, eight yards, Book dumps it over the line right to him every time almost. He outruns the farthest leverage guy to the sideline and ends up getting a first down. I love it. Nobody's been able to stop it consistently. He did it against Clemson. They didn't stop it. Do it 10 times a game. Do it 12 times a game. If it works, keep doing it. And he catches everything. Almost. Almost everything he catches. So keep doing it, okay? Now, switching over to defense, I don't know, man. I just, I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't feel like the defense has started crisp really since Clemson. And I don't know why that is or what, what it is, I just feel like they haven't been as tight with everything since the way they started the Clemson game. But, and and like, here's an example of that. That's an anomaly from the way we're used to this defense playing. You gave up 229 yards rushing to a Syracuse team that averages under a hundred yards rushing and has one win. We gave up some big runs, losing contained to the outside. I just don't get that. And I don't know what causes that. Like, if Syracuse surprised us with some of what they were doing, or we were so busy prepping for Clemson that it was just like, get in there and then adjust to what Syracuse does. I don't know. But it's not ideal to give up 229 rushing to a team that averages like 85 rushing and has one win. So I don't know. I I don't know what's up with that. But they won the game. 
and I've seen them play the defense they need to play against the best team we play all year. And so I'm going to give them credit for that and not rip them for this. But 229 against Syracuse, I don't I don't like that. They average like 84, 85 yards a game. So I don't know what all factors went into that allowance. I just know I didn't love it. Only gave up 185 through the air. That's fine. Um, here's one thing I do like a lot. We had four turnovers, so that helps. We've talked about the overall defensive numbers being very strong for Notre Dame this year, saying one thing we'd like more of is some of those turnovers. So maybe getting four of them in this game is a good indicator or something to come. I don't know, um, but it's it's obviously really good to see when you could get those takeaways. Um But overall, at this point, the defense has done enough for me that I'm willing to just kind of say, whatever, we won the game, we have bigger fish to fry, let's just keep it moving. I'm just not, I'm just not in in a position to, to ride them that hard about this. Six tackles for a loss, one sack in the game. Lewis had 12 tackles, the young kid. Bauer, six. Wu, five. It just... It just didn't feel like our normally focused, dialed-in, crisp Clark Lee defense at times. Like I said, the long runs, I don't ever want to see. But but it, that's what you start thinking. Like, how could you hold a back like Travis Etienne to 30-something yards rushing and then give up these gash runs to a, a one-win Syracuse? Right? Like... So whatever, it is what it is. I'm, Clark Lee, Lee has earned my trust um, and what they did against Clemson in the run game solidified that for me. So I'm just going to run with expecting that uh, when we play Clemson again, okay? Here's the thing we got to discuss. Special teams, okay? Door is becoming something I'm a little worried about on field goals. I looked back. He has now missed a field goal in every game going back to and including Clemson. Okay? So here's what I, where I'm at with this. The one he missed against Clemson, Remember, it was the really, really long one that ETN caught in the back of the end zone and almost ran back for a touchdown at the end of the first half. I am not going to hold that one against him. It was like 57, 58 yards. He kicked it straight and very strong. It just didn't get there. Out of his range, but the kick itself was a strong kick. It it was just too far away. So I'm not going to hold that one against him. Here's the issue, though. The issue I'm having is the field goals he's been missing these last few weeks since Clemson, they're not close. That's the issue I'm having. It's not like, hey, it hit the upright. Hey, it's sliced one yard away from the upright. He's not kicking them solid. That's a different issue. 
That's a different issue. So the way I kind of look at this is sometimes in golf, I'll have a round or two where it doesn't matter what I do. I, I just can't hit the sweet spot and I'm just off. Every golfer has that. Pro golfers have that where you just know whether you're locked in and dialed in or not. So that's, that's what worries me. It seems like lately he's going through some of these kicks where he ain't even making good contact and they're really weak and fading off to the right. It's just like it's like pulling out a three-wood and, and towing it and you swing hard, but you hit it off the toe and it's a weak fade. And then you snap it, snap the club over your leg like I do. So I don't know what's going on there, but it's been very obviously terrible miss hits, like not even close. So I don't know. I don't know how you come out of that. I don't know how you tighten it up. I don't know. I know for me, if I have a couple rounds of golf where I'm just not squaring it up the way I usually do, that's when I'll just take a few days off. And I'll just say, you know what? I'm not going to go practice. I'm not going to hit range balls. I'm not going to go rush to play 18 holes tomorrow. I'm going to just leave the sticks where they are, clear my mind, come back in a few days, and and uh, hope that that's out of my system. So I don't know if that works for kickers or not. Or if that's possible or not or feasible, I don't know. But it's very clear to me he ain't hitting these solid because they're not even freaking close. And they look like ugly, lame ducks where he's just nowhere close to squaring it up. So we're winning and whatever, that's fine. I would have a mega stroke if we need a reasonable length field goal to win a playoff game or the ACC title game and door slices one off the end of the club and it fades lame duck to the right. I'm not going to be able to handle that. I'm just telling you, I am not going to be able to handle everything it took to get us to that point for a kick to go like that. So get it figured out, get it figured out but it's becoming an issue. And it would be, even if the misses were close, I'd be bringing up that I don't like this. But the fact that that they're total miss hits, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. But I know as a golfer, that gets in my head. It gets in my head. When you're shooting in the mid-70s and then you have a day where you just can't keep the ball in play, it makes no sense and it's frustrating. Because you know, you you know you could do it. You do it all the time. And then you just hit a week where no matter what you do, you cannot square an iron up. You cannot square a three wood up. And it's super frustrating. So I don't know, but figure it out. Okay, figure it out. Okay, so we are going to do a full Clemson rematch pregame show uh, build up, but that's going to be next week. That's not what this week is. So we're going to do another full Clemson uh, rematch breakdown 
And also I'm hoping to be able to get with Pigskin Pete again so we could do another combined show talking about what's changed. I want to learn more about their health situation defensively and how he thinks that it could play out differently uh, in the rematch. So this isn't uh, the Clemson Part 2 preview video, but I still want to hit on some things that are in my mind that I think uh, we should all be thinking of, okay? So here's what I think right now as we sit. I think Clemson's defense is still a little bit gettable. They're still a little bit banged up. Um, I noticed they kept panning to the sideline during the Virginia Tech Clemson game. Some of their guys that were trying to come back got pulled back out because of injury stuff. Something wasn't right. So they're still a little banged up defensively, but they now have two weeks to get healthy. Well, our offensive line is a little banged up right now. We have two weeks to get healthy. So in that regard, we each have the same amount of time to try and get our guys right. Okay. In regards to Lawrence, I've said this before. I stick to it. Here's the deal. Unless there's a catastrophe in the the defensive backfield, which isn't a stretch for Notre Dame in the last 25 year history, by the way, Gary Gray, turn around and look at the ball, buddy. Um, I don't see Lawrence throwing for more than the 439 yards DJU did. But what I do think will happen is Lawrence will be more accurate on some touch throws or some critical third downs. I just feel like he's going to be able to thread something in there to get a big first down that maybe DJU forced because he's young. I don't know. So I don't expect the overall passing yardage to be higher I just expect it to be more efficient with Lawrence in there. Also, here's the other thing, and I think this is going to come into play big time, okay? I expect Lawrence to keep the ball and run against us. I do not feel like DJU did that a lot, if at all, okay? But I paid very close attention to this in the Virginia Tech Clemson game. They'll run these plays where it's everybody on the lines moving to the left, handoff to ETN or the other good running back they have that I forget his name, forgive me. They kept doing this. Off to the left, everybody's moving left, hand it off to ETN or the other guy, and they get their yards. Everything on that play is moving this way. The offensive line's moving left, the defense is moving left. That's where the play's going. They did that. They did that. They did that. They did that. And then, on one of them, Lawrence fakes that, has everybody moving that way. He rolls out the other way and can keep it and run it. There's no contain. Nobody over there to stop him because everybody was sucked to the other side of the field where the previous four ones went. I expect to see it. I expect to see it. And Notre Dame better have a guy on edge contain over there. I'm going to lose my mind if we fall for that repeatedly. It's an amateur dummy like me can see it clear as day. 
They're smart enough. They're going to pick their spots right when we got everybody leaning one way. That's the one where he's going to keep it and roll out the edge the other way. Okay. And here's the thing with him. He's not Chris Tyree's speed, but his tall ass 6'5 frame, he covers a lot of ground in a few steps. So it, I'm telling you, I'm picturing the, this play in the rematch. Notre Dame better have some edge contain over there to stop him from having a free sprint out run. Okay. So I expect to see that implemented in this game. Okay. Here's the other thing. And I was thinking about this. This, this game is in Charlotte and I don't know or remember the COVID rules in Charlotte or how locked down or not locked down they are or whatnot. Um, but they're only allowing 5,200 fans in there. It's a certain percentage of the overall capacity or whatever. It's only 5,200 people. Over the weekend, I started thinking to myself, wait a second. This game's in the Carolinas. We're used to playing with no fans where you could hear a pin drop. And now are we going to be in an environment where there's 40,000 Clemson people because it's in the, in the Carolinas and that's where they're located? It's not going to be that way. So I think that's a relief to me because if the game's in Charlotte and you allow a ton of fans in, just by proximity, more of them would be Clemson people. Also, we all know how well and far the Notre Dame tran- uh, fan base travels. I wouldn't expect that in a COVID year, even if it was capacity 50,000. You wouldn't have the same amount of Notre Dame fans willing to drive there, fly there, stay in a hotel, eat out at the restaurant. restaurants. That's just not something a lot of people are comfortable doing. So all that being said, I think it is a benefit to Notre Dame. There's only going to be 5,200 people there. So I'm not worried about the noise or the crowd or any of that stuff. Okay. So now Notre Dame's in a position to totally troll the ACC and every other conference by being in a conference one year, winning it outright, saying, yeah, that's not that hard to do, and then leaving back for independence. That would be, quite frankly, one of the highlights of my life. Like, I'm not exaggerating. You all know what a big deal Notre Dame is to me in my life. If we pulled this off, it's the ultimate troll job you could ever do in college football. And as a Notre Dame fan, it's perfect. It would be just unbelievable. Like, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around how great it would feel to be able to totally troll not only Clemson, not only the ACC, but conference life in general and just be able to say, what's the big deal? It's not that hard. We did it one year and won it. Big deal. It's not that fun. See ya. We're going back to independence. That That is... You can't create a better troll job in your mind than that provides. So just thinking about it, I'm giddy because 
it, it would just provide Notre Dame fans ammunition until every one of us dies about this independence versus conference thing. So that's obviously the goal. It would be amazing if we did it. But let me ask this. That part's really straightforward. You win that game, it knocks Clemson out because they'd have two losses. We would stay at number two if Alabama beats Florida. We would lock in our number two spot, then play who? Ohio State, maybe one of those other teams below them. Like We have to see where the other chips fall with the other games. But that's obviously the best scenario because it's the only way to guarantee you're not going to play Alabama first if they're one and you're two, right? One, four, two, three. So, but the interesting thing is what happens if we lose? Obviously, it's more clear cut if we win. You have the troll job part of it and then your ranking sewed up and to be able to avoid Alabama at one if they stay at one and win win against Florida. But what happens, what, excuse me. <laughs> oh, I got sinuses. My throat's all messed up. Excuse me. What happens if we lose close by three points, by seven points, by 10 points? Where do we drop to? It's clear cut if we win, and it's fun to talk about. But what if we lose a close one? Do we drop to three? Do we drop all the way to four for recency bias with a loss? I don't know. But it's a big damn deal because if you drop to four, you probably got to play Alabama round one. And, you know, everybody asks, who do you want to play or not want to play in the playoff? I just think it's smart to try and avoid Alabama round one no matter what. You know you could physically play with Clemson. I think we could play with Ohio State physically this year. Their defense is not nearly what we're used to. We could play with them. So if you could play with Ohio State and Clemson, you could certainly play with anybody ranked below them that would rise up. The only question I honestly have is Alabama is is a big question mark. So I think you would want them in the championship game, not the first game. That's just my opinion. Maybe you guys think differently, but that's how I feel, okay? But here's the reason this gets interesting. If it's close and we lose by a field goal, by seven points, by 10 points, by 13 points, whatever. The two to three thing is interesting because if we lose, I would imagine Clemson would be number two or whatever. Would they really put us three, meaning that we would play this game three times in the same year? That's my question. What's the appetite for Notre Dame Clemson three times in a row because that might be what you're looking at if we lose this game close. Do they have the appetite to rematch that? Now, if it's a great game and Clemson wins it, 
They might do it because you would say, we had an instant classic the first game, Notre Dame won. We had an instant classic the second game, Clemson won. Now we're going to do it again. So I could see that, but I could also see them trying to avoid the repetition of having the same game played three times in a year. I could see them not wanting to do it. And that's where it makes it more likely you lose recency bias with the loss, drop us down to four, play Alabama in the first round. Yikes, right? So those are some of the things I'm playing out in my head that I think it's interesting to see how they're going to go, okay? Here's the other thing. It sounds to me, from everything I've seen, read, and heard, that Notre Dame's pretty much in the playoff no matter what at this point. But, but, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't think this is a likely scenario. I don't think it's probably going to happen. I'm just throwing it out there because my job is to cover all the Notre Dame bases. What happens if we have a really bad game, Lawrence is on fire, and we lose by 21 points, 24 points, something like that? Again, I don't think that's likely. I'm just asking, at what point in a Notre Dame loss to Clemson this time Is it bad enough that the committee bumps Notre Dame out? That's my question. So I firmly believe if this game's competitive at all, Notre Dame's still going to make it even if they lose. My question is, where is the line to where that's not a sure thing anymore? Is it three scores? Does it not matter at all? I don't know. Is it 17 points? Once you get past that two-touchdown level, I don't know. But it's a big question I have. One, I hope we don't have to deal with or worry about. And obviously, what impacts this, clearly what we do does. But a part of this equation is you don't know till you see what happens with these other games. So I understand that part needs to be pressed into the equation. But I'm just sitting here wondering, absolute Notre Dame, worst case scenario, how much do we got to lose by to get bumped out of the playoff? Okay, here's the other thing. Say we do play crappy and Lawrence lights it up or something. How much credit will Notre Dame get at that point for having the biggest win of any team this year? Like, That's what I want to weigh. How much does having kind of an ugly loss in the ACC title game with that recency bias get balanced out by the counterweight of also having the biggest high-profile win of the year in the game of the year? So those are the things I'm thinking about that I'm just praying we don't have to deal with and worry about. But you know how I am. Like, I'm, I'm always well aware of the worst-case outcome in any Notre Dame scenario. Why? Because I'm a Notre Dame fan. I'm used to it. I was four years old the last time we won a title. So my entire cognizant life 
has been full of worst case outcomes with Notre Dame. So forgive me that I'm a little paranoid about it. It's been my entire existence. Anyways, that's what I'm thinking about. Where is that level? Okay, how does that win balance it out? So here's the final thing I want to cover on this Clemson thing for this discussion tonight. The pressure's all on Clemson. Now, I know they're tested. The coaching staff's obviously been tested and has proven they have championship medal. Lawrence has been tested. We know that. He can overcome it, win these high-profile games. I understand all that. But their backs are literally against the wall in this game. Not only just to make the playoff, but the other part of this is, do you think Clemson really wants to be the ones giving up their ride of ACC championship crowns to Notre Dame? No, no. So they're carrying the weight of the entire ACC. And in a way, they're carrying a banner for all conferences. You can't, they cannot let Notre Dame pull off this troll job. They can't, they can't. So all the pressure honestly is on Clemson. If they lose, they're out of the playoff. And if they lose, they're letting Notre Dame weasel in the ACC one year, win it, and and leave. So all of that's on Clemson's side. Now, I expect them to handle it well because of who they are and what they've done and proven the last handful of years. So I'm not saying they're going to be sitting there shaking because they're scared of this pressure. I'm just saying it's okay to acknowledge that that pressure is there and it's not equal. Notre Dame's got a game in pocket here to play with. This is not all or nothing for Notre Dame like it usually is. Okay, a reasonably close loss. Our championship goals are still intact as a benefit of what we've accomplished this regular season. Okay, so... I don't expect them to crumble under the pressure, but I do think it's important to lay out where it stands. They literally have to win to prevent us from trolling them and to get into the playoff. We do not. What does that mean for Notre Dame? I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what it means to me. Especially with the game in hand, I take some chances. I do some things. I I take some chances. Because it's not all over if you lose. So I would dial a couple things up they didn't see in the first game because we didn't need it the first game. Try and use it. Try and use it. Because Notre Dame's playing with margin for once. They're the team that can afford a loss and still make it. It's rare. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts on it, okay? A couple other notes. Um, This is really stupid. This is how dumb these people are. I got my Twitter inbox filled with Miami fans and fans of other ACC teams railing about how easy Notre Dame's schedule was this year. That's how stupid these people are, especially the Miami ones. And I'm thinking, wait a second. 
if you're complaining we had it easy in the ACC, number one, you're ripping your own conference for not having good teams. Number two, you're ripping your own team for not winning in a bad conference and being in our position playing for the ACC title. And number three reason this is stupid is I agree with you. The ACC schedule wasn't murderer's row, which is why we like our independent schedule, you dummy. So don't ever come to me complain about independence again. Strength of schedule would have been much tougher as an independent this year. So for ACC people to complain about how easy our schedule was, that's your fault, not our fault. So that's a horribly flawed argument from every damn angle. Idiots, okay? Here's another note. Replay booth people suck. They all need to be fired. They're, the replays in the Notre Dame game, are you serious? I could have sewed a quilt. I could have hopped in Santa's sleigh and went all the way around the world and give the gifts to all the kids in the time it took them to figure out these stupid replays. So officiating this year overall has been absolute garbage. These replay people, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to make it real simple for you. If you're more than a minute into a replay and you can't figure out what it is, that's an indicator that it's not close enough to overturn what was done on the field. How is that not fair? All these nerds in a booth, it drives me crazy. I look up there at some slob sitting there pushing up his glass. Oh, let me look at this replay. 80 minutes later, come on. It's garbage. So if it takes you more than a minute, it means it's not clear enough probably to overturn what you what the call on the field is, period. Stick with the call then. You, you get into this where it's five minutes later. Now you're looking at stuff that's just so minute that you're overdoing the project, okay? The worst one, LSU Alabama. The LSU dude ran all the way down for a touchdown, and he did the stupidest, I hate it, that stupid showboat thing they do where they're running in the open and they get to about the three and they drop the ball before they cross the goal line. This one wasn't even close. Seriously, like on the three-yard line, the guy drops the ball behind him celebrating, runs into the end zone, okay? They have cameras right there. Right away, they said, I think he dropped the ball before he was in. It wasn't even close. It was like three yards off. Didn't even look at it. So if you're not going to look at that and you're getting paid to be in a replay booth, what the hell are you doing? Why, why do you have a job? Why do you have a job? You know what? Here's what we'll do. Screw paying these idiots to sit in a booth. Show it on TV. They apparently have better angles and answers than the people in the booth do. So all those people suck. Figure out a way to be more efficient because it's inconsistent garbage, okay? Okay. One other note. 
This is going back from the Bears-Packers game where the Packers humiliated the Bears two weeks ago. I'm in the Chicago area. I listen to all the Chicago radio, okay? And Olin Krutz, who was a offensive lineman on the, for the Bears in their Super Bowl year uh, in 05 when they played the Colts, he was a captain. He was a leader. He was a mauler. He was the guy setting the tone. He had a mean streak. Olin had a mean streak. He was getting in fights with his own teammates in the weight room. Olin's a big-time, respected offensive line guy. He now does Bears postgame, okay? And they were railing about the Bears' lack of effort, and they rolled over and died. Nobody was trying. Nobody's fighting. This is a rivalry game. How could you lay down like that? Olin Krutz brought this up, and I thought you guys would love it. There was a play where a Bears guy had the ball, got dragged down. The Packers were kind of, they were tangled, and a couple of Packers were kind of giving the Bears guy the business way after the play. Tangling up with them, kind of giving him the business, two-on-one situation. Olin Krutz said he noticed there was only two Bears players that ran full speed to where this happened and started defending their player. On the whole Bears team, two guys. You know who they were? Sam Mustafer and Alex Bars. And Olin went out of his way to say, I want it noted. The only two guys that did the right thing and got over there and got involved in this to protect their guy. Sam Mustafer, Alex Bars. Both Notre Dame linemen. I just think that says a lot that that's just how they, that's just what they know is the right thing to do. So I absolutely love it, okay? Um, Urban Meyer rejected Texas. That's another note. They offered him $12 million a year. He turned it down, citing health reasons. It is what it is. If he was going to return, I'd much rather be Texas than Southern Cal. Let him go ahead and win the Big 12, whatever. I would much rather that than Southern Cal, okay? Because then, obviously, we got to deal with them every year. Um, Harbaugh, I don't know what the deal is. I've heard it's, it's guaranteed he's going to coach the Lions, which nobody in Michigan wants him still in Michigan. If he co- coached the Lions, it'd be hilarious. Then I heard he's getting a three-year extension. I have no idea which to believe. I, I've seen both. Guaranteed he's going to coach the Lions. Guaranteed three-year extension already written out. Who the hell knows? I don't know. Um, here's what I do know, though. Whatever you're going to do with Harbaugh, they got to figure out within the next week. The early signing day periods in like 10 days or something, this has to all be figured out before then. It's going to kill recruiting. You can't get close to that signing deadline and the players don't know if he's there or not. So I expect a resolution uh, from that soon. Also, we were all like, oh, Michigan's going to get out of playing Ohio State because of COVID and all this. I did see that they were cleared for football activities today. Michigan was. That spread is 30 and a half. I, I got Ohio State covering that, don't you? 
I definitely have Ohio State covering that. So I hope this game happens. Um, they're going to put Ohio State in the playoff even if they don't reach the threshold to play in the Big Ten title game. So I, I would like to see him. Notre Dame doesn't play. I'd like to sit back with a beer and watch Ryan Day beat them 97 to nothing. That would make me happy. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's talk about some other game scores and then wrap this up. I don't want to go too long today. There's just a lot going on. It's an exciting time of the year. Bama 55, LSU 17. Lame and boring. Alabama's really good. I mean, whatever. Sorry, I'm not an Alabama fan. So watching them truck everybody makes for a boring viewing experience unless you have an elephant trunk hanging off your face. It's just boring they're so good. Clemson 45, Virginia Tech 10. Tech could have played, made this a game. They shot themselves in the foot 87 times doing dumb stuff. Lawrence was fine, not his sharpest. 12 for 20, 295 yards. They were running the ball, so he didn't have to throw a lot, but definitely not his sharpest, but be damn sure he's going to be ready for us. Ohio State 52, Michigan State 12. It's whatever. Ohio State was down like 20 people, a few offensive linemen. Didn't matter. 52-12. MSU so bad. It's sickening. Even more, that's even more unbelievable what they did to Michigan. I still can't believe it. A&M 31, Auburn 20. A&M needs chaos and lots of it since they're not in the SEC title game. Uh, and it's going to be Florida and Alabama. They need a whole lot of stuff to happen to get up where they need to get. Florida 31, Tennessee 19. Trask 433 yards, four TDs. Heisman front runner, right? How could he not be? So I believe Bush needs to be in this Heisman discussion now, but Trask has been putting up crazy numbers all year. Book's only really been doing it the second part of the year. So I have no complaints if Trask wins the Heisman. Now you could argue that Book played the best in the highest profile game of the year, but I still think having four or five other full game data points is going to give it to Trask, and I don't have a big complaint. Um, BYU 17, Coastal Carolina 22. I got to be honest, this was a fun game to watch. It was really intense. It was really chippy. Um, these guys really wanted to... Uh, they really wanted to show out and show that they belonged, and they went hard at each other. They both just don't play tough enough schedules. I'm entertaining you for the playoff. But it was a great game to watch. It was a great game to watch. Um, but playoff consideration, no. But it was a it was one of the better games to watch of the week. Uh, USC, Washington State. That was Sunday night. COVID, I don't know why, but it was Sunday night. Um, here's the thing. This is really interesting. They'll probably go 5-0 and playing nobody any good, so they won't get playoff consideration. But the biggest part of this is they're not going to fire Clay Helton in a pandemic year where he goes undefeated. So your worry about him being gone and Urban going there seems to me you're out of that worry this year. In the middle of a pandemic, the, the Pac-12 is already a nightmare. 
USC already has issues. When they go undefeated, they're not going to let Helton go. So it seems like for this year, you can avoid that worrying about Urban and USC. Okay. So that's going to be it for this episode. Um, I'm going to be doing a whole lot more in the next couple weeks leading up to Clemson. Crossover with Pigskin Pete, live streams. I have a Q&A thing I'm working on that I want to start doing. So stay tuned. We have a big few weeks ahead of us. See y'all on Twitter. Have a good night.